Greetings, super friends. Welcome to Superman and Lois and Pals. I'm Henry Bernstein, and alongside me is my favorite super pal, Professor Sam Brody. Hello, Sam. Hey, Henry. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. Uh, we've It's been a little while, so we're going to catch up on two episodes tonight. But first, I wanted to revisit a discussion that we had in the last episode about the timeline of Superman and Lois. So I wanted to tell you something. I actually made a new super pal uh, over the last two weeks when we were off. We have a, a new listener who reached out and wrote some really kind words about our podcast. And so I wanted to give a shout out to Jen Russell, who hosts a podcast of her own about the NBC show Blacklist. Check out Keen Minds Podcast. You can find it on Apple Podcast and on Twitter. She's at Keen underscore Minds. So Jen and I have been talking a lot about Superman and Lois, which she loves. And she wanted to help us with our understanding of the timeline. So this is what she wrote to me. She said, the topic of Lois and Clark's ages, I think it actually does work in this timeline. Assuming Lois and Clark are about the same age, the Arrowverse fandom page has Clark's birth year set in 1979. So that would put him at 41, 42, if this is based on the current day. The twins are 14, so they would have been born in 2007, putting Clark in his late 20s when they were born. If Lois was also born in 79 and graduated college at 22, and I could see her graduating early, that could put her as six years between graduation and the boys being born. So you got to squint a little bit for it, she says, but for TV, it's closer than a lot of the other shows bother with. And then she said, for Tyler being 33, I think they addressed that in the pilot when Lana says it's like he doesn't age, which was simpler, something you said uh, earlier, Sam. So she thinks Clark is supposed to be in early 40s, looks young. So what do you think about my new pal, Jen Russell's explanation of the timeline? I like that. That's good. Um, Lois graduating early is the kind of thing that makes sense to me if she had some kind of um, study abroad program or something that she did for credit that involved journalism, right? Now, a lot of places don't have journalism for undergrads, right? But I could imagine her sort of going to a place that did or inventing it. I mean, we can just make up the Metropolis University does in fact have that, right? So that kind of makes sense. Hmm. Yeah, I like it. That's a good explanation. I think it works for our take on it because we also had said she seems a little older than him and certainly more um, seasoned. And if she was in college and did a study abroad, like I could see her being, I could see if you were the editor of the Metropolis University student paper, it's probably a big student paper. It's probably an important thing. It's probably like the people that live on MetU, that's their that's their paper. They probably also read the planet, but like when I was in college, I read did the Indiana university newspaper. Cause it was right there. And I had friends who were reporters for it and who were editors on it. And so to me, that seems like that would probably be a big job. And then if she went abroad, maybe whatever exchange program she was on, she Lois laned her way onto that paper, or maybe she, yeah, got a job as like a foreign correspondent as a young kid because she just found her way to you know the bottom of uh, a bomb on the Eiffel Tower like in Superman 2 you know I know she's an established reporter then but I'm saying like that that tracks with what with what you were saying 
So here's here's my my question about it though. Is in this timeline, how long are Lois and Clark married before they have the kids? So if the twins are born in 2007, which I think is you have to work with that ironclad because that's they tell you their age and it's now, right? So if they're 14, they were born in 2007. Um, now, if Lois and Clark are 30 or 28, let's say she's 30, he's 28. That maybe I would work with that. Um, but in the timeline that Jen gave, they're both 28. So did they get married at 27 or 26? It feels a little soon for professionals like them. Um, but we could just say they love each other so much and they're so perfect for each other. So maybe they were into each other fast. Now in the comics, so like in the burn part of that era, so 86 to uh, 89 or so, 88, 89 or so, you know, there, she first hates him, then their rivals, then their friends. Once Jerry Ordway and Dan Jurgens came over, um, they start dating, in I think issue of an issue of Superman, I think it's like issue 43. And the reason why I know this is because on my recent reread of the comics of that era, the whole crisis crisis era, I, I, I clocked that they, they got engaged in Superman issue 50. And that was a huge deal. I remember the proposal very well. Right. That's an incredible issue. And then of course, a couple issues later, he, he does the reveal. So, and I remember clocking it seven months before that in co- in real time, but in comic time, who knows what that is. They were only dating a few months before they got engaged is what I mean. So it doesn't seem that way. Like it's fast in the comics and the comics, it felt very drawn out, I think because they were engaged for six years, <laughs> but um, it felt like a really long time. It wasn't, it was short. So let's say two young kids start working at the, the planet and fall in love. Who knows? I think we're going to get, some of those answers in the next episode because it's a flashback episode. One more point. Okay. That would introduce a delay factor into this timeline. And that is the classic Mallrats uh, conversation. About whether the thing has a rock penis or not. <laughs> uh, maybe I'm, I'm forgetting whether it was Mallrats <laughs> or, or Clerks or whatever. The question that, that people outside the universe have about whether they can have children at all had to also be a question that they would have had to ask themselves. And in particular, they would have had to ask themselves or somehow demonstrate to their satisfaction that it wouldn't be physically dangerous for Lois to carry part human, part Kryptonian children in her womb. And so I don't know if, there's an Emil Hamilton in this world or like somebody who at, at Star Labs or wherever who can like, you know, run some tests and like determine to their satisfaction that that is safe for them to do. But I feel like they would have had to do that. And I don't know how long it would take, but I feel like they can't just get married, have kids without introducing that into the timeline as well. Well, I don't know if there is an Emil Hamilton yet but there's certainly a Dabney Donovan. Yes, we, we can talk about Dabney Donovan. I have things to say about this. So let's talk about loyal subjects.
written by Andrew N. Wong, directed by Eric Dean Stanton. Jordan is infected with the same bioweapon Superman was, leading to hard feelings between Lois and Sam. Sarah is forced to perform alone because Jordan is homesick. And Morgan launches an attack on Lois and Jonathan and reveals who he really is to Superman. Okay. So if you can remember that far back, I don't know if that jogged your memory on that stuff. This episode, first of all, had a lot of the Cushing stuff that I don't care about. And I just, I mean, okay, Sarah has a nice voice. Cool. Jordan, they did like a Smallville thing where Jordan couldn't be somewhere because he was sick with his power is fine. I, I just don't care about that stuff. I don't know. I think that um, the, I don't know how, we don't have that many episodes left. It did seem like that was there just to make it so that there would be an extra tension. Like in the following episode, it gave the scene between Sarah and Jordan where she worries about whether the fight that they had will be the last conversation she has with him in case he never gets his consciousness back. Right. And there I did care about that. Um, And so if they hadn't done it first, you know, they could have just made that up and had her like exposit that to Jordan without having it been a scene that we saw. Right. Right. But I think that having it be a scene that we saw did make it more effective when it happened. Right. Well, in that case, let's also talk about Oh Mother, Where Art Thou, written by Adam Mallinger, directed by Harry Yerjian. It's J-I-E-R-J-I-A-N. So I'm sorry, Harry, if I mispronounce your name. Lana reaches out to Lois and Clark when Kyle starts behaving strangely. Jonathan opens up to Jordan. Sarah storms out. After accusing her mom of always covering for her dad, Superman is forced to expend all of his powers to free the possessed Smallville residents from the Kryptonian consciousness possessing them. With Lana's help, he turns to a Kryptonian close to him for help. Meanwhile, Morgan initiates his backup plan with Leslie's help. So I think the subjects episode, loyal subjects, clearly is just leading us to the plot in Oh Mother, Where Art Thou? It's easy for me to say. It's getting us from point A to point B, we, you know, we're, we don't get that moment of Morgan Edge being someone else and saying, brother, it, it, it was, it felt like an awesome, cool TV. Oh my God moment. But I kind of partially was also expecting him to be something at some point. Like I thought he was going to say in the next episode, you know, I'm Zod or something like that. Like, but that was, it it both had a nice impact and was creative, but it also felt like, okay, that makes sense. So I don't want to be, I'm not like deviating from the comics complaining guy. I don't mind. I don't think everything needs to always be what it is, but I do feel like Morgan edges his own character and didn't need to also be another character. Um, I've always been partial to the sort of Morgan Edge as a um, kind of a flunky for Apocalypse version, but like if they didn't want to do that, that's fine. If they just wanted to use him as a sort of Lex Luthor stand-in, that's fine. If they wanted to give him some other backstory, which is what they in fact did, 
that's fine. My problem with the Talro thing so far is that it does seem like it's a Zod story and they're just doing it without Zod. And that kind of rubs me the wrong way because um, in Zod stories, you understand why he has followers. He's a general and they're his soldiers. And on top of that, he has an ideology of like Kryptonian supremacism, which is like a kind of very understandable sort of hyper-nationalist ideology. I think Zod is a very relevant character for our times in that way. With Tal Ro, and I will leave this open to like, you know, reserve judgment because we don't know what's coming and they are quite possibly going to flesh this out more. And I don't want to complain about something when it's not over yet. But I don't understand why all of these other Kryptonian consciousnesses are just like completely on board with this plan so that they all just like attack in unison and they're all just like, yeah, let's kill all the humans. I mean, nobody disagrees with this. Like how did, how are these Kryptonians selected? And like, why are they following Tal Ro? Who even is, who cares? If he's General Zod, it makes much more sense. General Zod's an important dude. Um, so that's kind of a, an issue I'm, I'm having with that. Yeah. Well, first of all, Sam, I need your help understanding the what was happening on Krypton timeline. In the, uh, the part when he, in O Mother, Where Art Thou, where he's hovering above and he tells this whole story, I had to rewind it three different times to to understand what exactly happened when with Lara and this other guy. It, like, like it seems like a part of it is like the, the burn um, man of steel where there, it was a cold, you know, loveless planet where two people were matched by DNA and they kind of, and like Jor-El and Lara had sort of a Romeo and Juliet, thing happening and they had this natural child or whatever the natural child isn't a burn thing i know but it's it's been done uh i think they did it on in man of steel i think snyder did it so i don't i just don't understand the timeline when did this happen when this other like did he go to earth before kal-el can did you get all that and if so can you explain it to me (laughs) um the relationship thing I understood that she was basically just talking about divorce. She didn't use the word, but it sounded to me like she was married before. Oh. She was married to the guy that she was supposed to be married to. And then the sort of countercultural thing comes in where she and Jor-El fell in love. So then she left her first husband and married Jor-El. That was how I understood. Oh, in that case, that's like, real housewives of krypton stuff like that's (laughs) scandalous i I mean i I just understood as like she didn't be with the person to whom she was betrothed but they still took their two dnas and made a tal ro baby and then she just went on with her life and married jor-el that is very different than how i understood it i think the interpretation kind of partially depends on whether you on what krypton you imagine behind it so if you imagine the man of steel krypton behind it which is the one that you were talking about with the natural child business. Um, That gives you one answer. Whereas if you imagine the John Byrne Krypton behind it, that gives you a different in the, in the John Byrne one, the scandal 
there's always something countercultural about Jor-El and Lara's relationship. In John Byrne, the scandal is that they love each other. Even though they're married, it's not expected that they love each other and they're not even supposed to have physical contact, right? And so their baby is supposed to be made by like taking their stuff from them and putting it together in the matrix and the birthing matrix creates the baby. They're not supposed to have natural intercourse or anything like that. In Man of Steel, the whole thing, they add the idea of genetic predestination for the children and they, they use the sort of Kryptonian caste system idea, which has also been done many times. Right. They do it in the Krypton show, too. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and also in the new Krypton storyline from um, just before the new 52, I think yeah. it was, which I thought was done really well and is one of the better Zod stories that's ever been done. Um, they did that as well. And they had the Soldiers Guild and the or, you know, whatever. I remember when Krypton, the show, debuted and we had a whole discussion on Facebook about it. And I remember when you uh, you were like sort of live tweeting on Facebook, you're watching it. You're like, oh, they're doing the guild thing. Okay. <laughs> I remember you commenting on the I guild. I completely forgot that that, that happened. But um, now that you're reminding me, I do remember. So, but, so what I imagined during this speech, and it was very, very little to go on, so like what I'm noticing now since you bring it up is just that like you're going to fill in something in your head and they don't direct you too much which thing to fill in. So I imagined something that was not like I didn't imagine the John Byrne world per se in that they couldn't like touch each other because the character to me doesn't behave that way. Um, like you remember in how they had those outfits that completely covered their bodies and like their hair wouldn't be out and stuff that I think is like a whole way of being in the world that I didn't see this Lara as acting like that. And when you see the Jor-El hologram, he doesn't act like that either. Um, so I imagine that she just was like sort of married. The DNA thing I thought was sort of maybe from the caste system type thing. They were matched DNA wise because there's social engineering on Krypton. But they probably just like had natural intercourse, like normal married people. And then what mess what what was weird and countercultural was that she like fell in love with some other dude and then like left her husband for him. So did she did she and her first and Talro's father have sex and have a baby, or did they take their DNA and make Talro? I think that they had sex and had a baby. Okay. I have to they say were genetically something matched here. because they were supposed to produce whatever Talro was supposed to be. Like if he was supposed to be a, a scientist or if he was supposed to be uh, a scholar or whatever he was supposed to be, that's why they were put together was so that they could have a kid like that, but not because they're not supposed to have sex. Okay. I, I have a problem with that. If that's the case, I like Jorel and Lara to have a love for Kal-El. And I think that's just like a, that's just like the version of Jor-El and, and, and Lara I want where they, they don't, they feel attached to this baby and they're making a great sacrifice to save his life. And it's because they love him so much that that's what they're doing. If what you said is the case then, and not just like, then it seems like Lara is a deadbeat mom to Tal Ro, And 
because he he went to earth at some point did she send him to earth did like it's still i still don't understand what what her relationship is and how how much is he much older than baby kal-el i still need some more help sam i mean i don't think we got we didn't get that information so we just don't know like why was Talro sent to earth when did that happen i don't think we got enough information to answer either of those questions we they know kind that of, he was older yeah. than Kala when he landed. He didn't come as a baby. He came as like right. a kid. Um, right, he's like Kara's age, maybe. Yeah, maybe a little younger. I don't know. I don't remember yeah. what Kara looked like when she came out of the ship. I guess she was like... She, she was a young, young kid. She was like yeah. okay. 10 or 11. Yeah. So um, we don't know. Did he land? Are all of these kids being sent because Krypton is doomed? Being sent before that? Right, like three babies from the same family have been sent to Earth because Krypton is doomed. Like that's already three people who believe Jor Jor-El's crazy, you know, ravings about the Earth, the, the world being destroyed. Like that's a that's enough people to make a case. <laughs> yeah, why? What's up with the Science Council at this point? Right, like, they're not even like. Not only do they not believe Joel, they don't believe any of his um, other people who believe him. Other relatives who are also super scientists, including his wife, Lara. So here they they did, I thought was a cool thing. The way they did it, I think we're going to talk about in a minute. But I liked giving Lara some science substance that Lara created the, the eradicator. I think there, there have been flashes of brilliance throughout time where Lara has been given a voice in different properties, but never like a real full personality. For example, there's a famous story from the filming of Superman, the movie with Richard Donner, where Marlon Brando had all the lines on, on Krypton between uh, him and baby Kal-El and Susanna York pushed for it and to, to Donner and said, Hey, I'm this baby's mom. I'm he came from me and I'm sending him off. Don't you think I should say something to him? So like that was one. And I'm thinking of other examples of more so like the 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 loving stuff with 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 baby Kalel, but here it was cool to to give her a pretty iconic part of Superman story, the eradicator as the creator, being the creator of it. What did you think of just that aspect? I'm not not getting into Lana's uh possession yet. We'll talk about that in a minute. Do you want to talk about the fact of the eradicator itself or only what I think about the idea that Lara created it? A great question, Sam. Let's start with Lara and then let's get into the eradicator and then let's get into Lara in Lana. How about that? Okay, so I am fine with the idea that Lara, like Jor-El, is also a brilliant scientist. And I am fine with the idea of giving her a closer connection to something from the mythos, like the Eradicator. I don't feel like the Eradicator is something that has a specific origin that needs to be kept the same. Like, I think revising it, if you want to use it, is like, well within bounds and i think this was a cool way to do that um but maybe to just like nitpick or then on the second point i didn't get like how this was the eradicator at all and there was something really weird where they were trying to have lara be like a dissenter from the tall row project 
and like she says several times that like this wasn't supposed to be used to supplant another race but was just supposed to preserve kryptonian consciousness but then why is it eradicating why isn't it called the the temporary transferer like if it's an eradicator that makes it sound like it's eradicating stuff so why would you call it that if it was just supposed to be some kind of museum curating device (laughs) yeah yeah it was kind of like um do you remember in Supergirl when they made John Hank Henshaw and then they moved into the Hank Henshaw? He, he fights Dean Kane, right? When Dean Kane was Kara's dad. And he go, he has that stupid fake metal thing on his face and he goes, I am the cyborg Superman. And it's like, why? What would a like did you <laughs> pretend to be Superman and then are revealing that you're cy- like I don't even think the cyborg Superman was ever called that during at least the period that he was secretly cyborg super, you know, like even all the way through engine city, I don't think he was ever called the cyborg Superman. So that moment was so lame. One of the early appearance appearances, one of the reporters calls him that when they're distinguishing him from, from the, the other, other three. three. Yeah. So they're like, there's Superboy, There's the guy in the steel suit. There's the cyborg Superman. And there's, you know, they were calling the Eradicator the last, the last son, son of, of Krypton. Like, yeah, so that I, was it. I, I so I, I completely agree with you, Sam, on the Eradicator stuff. I thought that was so um, disappointing. Like you've now used up the the Eradicator. You can't use that word anymore. It can morph into something else. They obviously left that open. He brought it to the fortress. You know, we know that in the comics. He, he got it out in, on his trip in space and then brought it to the fortress. And then because it was in the fortress, it naturally did the thing where it became the eradicator three different tri- times and tried to eradicate. Uh-huh. So, so, but like, why the would thing Laura... It does. <laughs> right, the thing that it's called, it does. And the thing that uh-huh. it does, it's called. Why would Laura call it that? Why wouldn't she call it like the, to borrow a phrase from friends, the transponster or something? Like why, yeah. I mean... Anything it felt shoehorned in, like they just wanted to, they wanted to t- t- give people like you and me, yeah, like a fun thing from the comics, and they called it the Eradicator. But like in the context in which they decided to introduce it, it made no sense that that would be the name of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it was, it was, it was kind of disappointing. Yeah, I just want to say one more thing about that. It seems sort of like what she created was the the mind meld that Spock does at the end of Star Trek two with Dr. McCoy to implant his Katra in him so that it will be preserved. Like, it seems like they're, they're trying to like, that's the thing they were trying to do. Like let's preserve all Kryptonian life in mind. But again, why would she call something like that? Like just call it the Kryptonian Katra project. I don't know. Yeah. I was a little bit annoyed because it felt, and this is also what I was going to say about Dabney Donovan. Oh, please. I was like, why is Dabney Donovan here? Yeah. Does it matter that he's Dabney Donovan or are they just grabbing names from the list of people who have ever been in Superman comic? And the reason, and and in one sense, it's kind of cool because it, it does give us something to talk about here. Right. Because in a short span of time, they introduced John Henry Irons, the Eradicator, and a prominent scientist from Cadmus 
responsible for cloning Superboy, right? So if you put all these things together and then you forget about Hank Henshaw already having happened in Supergirl in a weird way, there's like all these elements are in place for Reign of Superman, right? And so if they're doing that on purpose and that's why it's Dabney Donovan, that's cool. If they just are like pulling names out of the like Superman Bible to just give to characters, then I kind of like don't care at all. Yeah. Um, yeah. They could just name this character Joe Schmo and like whatever. I like the name checks. I think that's, that's fun. And it, and it works sometimes like uh, when they introduced Foswell in the pilot so most people watching who know Superman would be like, oh, that's not Perry White. Okay, that makes sense that Perry White wouldn't be the one to fire him. I wonder what happened. And for us, people like us, we know Foswell from the comics as being a bad man- managing editor who fired a lot of people at the behest of ownership. So, so that was a cool name check. We don't need to see him again. If they're planting the seeds for Dabney Donovan, then... That's cool because remember in the comics, Dabney Donovan kept coming back because he would just clone himself. And, you know, so he uh, cloned Lex Luthor too. He cloned Superboy. He cloned the Bizarro. Uh, Dr. Tang did the first Bizarro, but I think subsequent Bizarros he did. Um, And maybe Guardian also in the Newsboy Legion. Was he cloning them? He might have already been on, I mean, maybe the original clone of Guardian, but he may have already been on the outs as like a mm. Luther person. But, but yeah. Maybe so the Newsboy Legion was even before his time. Right. I don't uh, remember. Yeah, I don't remember. I but, mean, there was always that weird thing with the Newsboy Legion where like they talk like they were from the 30s, even though it was the 90s. And they talked like Jack Kirby. Yeah. Because he created Um, them. Because Jack Kirby is amazing. And everything that he created that became part of the Superman universe is wonderful. And he doesn't get enough credit for that. Like everything else that he did, he doesn't get enough credit. I mind if they decided to just put the Newsboy Legion in there exactly like that for whatever reason. All right. Now on this show, there's a bunch of like boys who sell newspapers and we're Newsboy Caps and they all talk like they're from the 30s. And you just have to accept it. Yeah. (laughs) yeah um all right and the forever people we're also going to put in the forever people right a bunch of super hippies mm-hmm. that <laughs> that are fun and also have superpowers and right and it's have... called beautiful dreamers <laughs> and they have a badass van okay the van goes through the boob tube <laughs> i mean think about the opportunities for cross marketing on pride Doesn't yeah they make like a giant rainbow wake <laughs> <sighs> totally totally um, all right. I both want to talk to you about this and kind of dread it. Let's talk about Larna, Lara Lana. Um, all right. I'm going to say something nice and then I'm going to say something critical. I like the idea of Kal-El Clark being able to talk to his mom. I think Emmanuel Shikri is a good actor. I also think this is one of the few times I actually gave a crap when she was on screen this season. And I allowed myself to, um, I had to do it consciously, but I allowed myself to just sort of be sucked into the moment and imagine that Kal-El was talking to his mom. And the acting was really over the top. (laughs) She didn't really do a good job. It was so cheesy. It was just sort of 
You know what I mean? Like I, I kind of let myself enjoy it, but it wasn't good. Does that make sense? I think I know what you're saying. I feel like, so this is, this uh, goes back to something you were saying earlier. Um, to me, the lack of a role for Lara is one of the sort of obvious holes or like lacunae that can be make something made something of like just like when I talk about Man of Steel, which I like mostly hate, except for Henry Cavill's performance, which I thought was fine, and the fact that Lois figures out that Clark is Superman like very quickly, which I thought was like something that was introduced in Man of Steel that can become a lasting thing that should be repeated. Maybe the only thing, in fact, that I think should become a lasting thing that is repeated from that. And so far, I think this is, other than the fact of Jonathan and Jordan themselves um, as characters, I think in terms of long-standing Superman mythos stuff, this is an original idea of this show that can become a lasting, like, there is no reason Jor-El and Jor-El alone should be, like, the hologram that Kal-El talks to. Um, and, and I think there have been other comics from the past where both parents were there, but, like, so often that is forgotten and, and Lara just drops out. So I'm really glad they did that. I didn't mind that they decided to do it through possession because that was the storyline and having Emmanuel Shriki play her, I thought was fine. And I think she did a good job. What actually bothered me about it was that her values were so American. <laughs> like that the, the, what she wanted most for her son was that he grow up and have a family or whatever. Isn't she from Krypton? Like, I understand that she and Jarrell fell in love and that that was countercultural, right? But does that mean that together with that comes this entire package of values where the thing you care most about is family? And like, you know, that just seems weird. Like, why isn't the thing she cared most about that he would like be great or like, you know, um, maybe she wants him to be a scientist. Like Jorel is always quoted as wanting him to do some kind of like sort of quasi messianic you know, role for earth people, right? So it just seems weird to me that like, that's what she wanted. It just seems like that's a kind of earth mom, America mom thing to want. And so that kind of bugged me. Yeah, it would have made sense if if the thing she wanted for him was to find love. And that's the end of it. Like, what does she care? You know, like, she, yeah, she with that that version of Krypton, she wouldn't care about. I mean, she might be surprised and happy to see that he had children, naturally and twins you know and everything super kids but like she would want she i could imagine her being like i want you to find love and then he did and that was the greatest gift to her because also she, why isn't she surprised that he can have children with earth people like she just thinks that's totally normal it's not even a question like oh of course that can happen like that seems surprising like it should at least be like she's from a culture where they apparently mash people up for dna like within the species, according to some kind of sub genome studies. And then she's just like, oh yeah, of course Kryptonians can just like have children with humans. Well, I think part of the personality of Kryptonians when they come back or Jor-El and Lana, Jor-El and Lara it specifically is that they, they're never surprised by anything. They're just like, you know, holograms is like, hmm yes yes just kind of nodding there in the corner like they're sort of all-knowing they're sort of deities they're i mean they're also 
So I don't know. I, I, I think, and maybe she did know that. Maybe she knew, maybe that's why she was comfortable sending him to earth, right? Like in the comics, she's, she is um, horrified by that man's barren chest in the wheat fields of Kansas. How could he yeah, bear yeah. his his hairy flesh? Uh, you know, remember that panel? And, uh, which, savages. Uh, savages, yeah. right. And is that supposed to be Jonathan also, or is that just a random? Oh, I thought it was just some random dude. Yeah, because otherwise it was like, whoa, Jonathan's ripped. But <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm with you on that. I mean, that was maybe that's why, because I couldn't really place my finger on why it just kind of felt a little cheesy. Maybe that was it. it. It was just that it was not that believable. You had to really lean into, I am watching a comic book movie TV show comic thing, you know, yeah. and which I do. I'm really good at enjoying things when I want to enjoy them. I wouldn't mind if um if I would like to know if Talro has the hologram of her, like the one that would be the equivalent to the Jor-El hologram in the Fortress of Solitude, and then if Superman could recover it and like reunite it with Jor-El in the Fortress of Solitude, that would be kind of cool. And then of course she'd be played by another actress, which was like fine. But like maybe then they could also develop her a little bit more through the hologram, although I'm not really, I'm never quite sure with the holograms how the AI is supposed to develop. Like, is it actually sentient? Does it have feelings? Like, is the Jorah hologram happy that Clark has children and a loving wife? Or does the Jorah hologram just like know whatever Jorah knew at the time that he uploaded it and it just conveys information? I've never quite been clear on that. Okay, I have a a little of this is a speculatory answer, but okay, so on uh, one of my favorite podcasts, Superman Movie Minute, I was just a guest on that, by the way. So check it out, Superman Movie Minute covering Superman 3. But on their first season, Chris Franklin and Rob Kelly talk about this during uh, the journey through time and space that uh, when Jor-El is imparting his wisdom onto baby Kal-El through the... Uh, through the ship. And I think their understanding was, is that there is something mystical or um, not magical. It's not, that's not the right word, but something uh, godly about it, that he is, it is sort of the essence or the soul of Jor-El, at least in Superman, the movie that is able to communicate with Clark. And then, you know, of course in the Donner, and I think Richard Donner sort of alluded to that in the commentary on the movie, but you know, because remember in the Donner cut, they, he actually embraces Clark and you know and gives him all of his power. And so there's no way he would know everything that's gonna happen. Life isn't predetermined. So it seems like that it's like maybe they science is so good. The way I understand it is science is so good on Krypton is that they figured out also the soul, that the soul is scientific. It is a scientific thing that they figured out how to live on. So I feel like if that's true, it also raises the possibility that like, and I think about this actually in a lot of contexts on shows and movies where the idea of uploading and downloading consciousness is raised, that hypothetically you could make copies of your consciousness and then upload them in different places. And then the subsequent experiences that your consciousness would have in the different places would create completely different versions of you, sort of like parallel universe the way that parallel universe versions of characters differ except it would all be within one universe it would just be like the jor-el that's a hologram in the fortress of solitude and then oh by the way there's a jor-el on ran 
and there's a Jor-El on Thanagar, and there's a Jor-El like on New Genesis, and they've all had different subsequent experiences, and they're all slightly different people. I mean, like hypothetically, that seems possible if that technology exists. That's neither here nor there in terms of this show. There are two things I, I, I just remembered that we have to talk about. I yes. also have a last thing. So maybe one of your two things is my last thing. But okay. just so you know, I have a last thing as well. Great. Okay. Well, we're going to let you do your last thing. Two last things. Uh, okay. Lois refers to him when she's telling, she's talking to La- Lara about her husband. She says he's the first and best hero, which brings into question that thing that you and I talked about before that you brought up that isn't Green Arrow supposed to be the 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 first hero which you know again is another like point in the theory that maybe this is out of your universe the other thing i want to mention he used a solar flare which was such a cool power it was like the one cool thing that the new 52 added where he can just expend all of his powers in one burst because it's he stores up the sun so why can't he do a sunburst i love that that was so cool so those are my last two things if you want to comment on either of them go ahead and then your last thing please the solar flare was my last thing Oh, okay, so, great. Wait, so just first, remind me what your thing was before the solar flare. So, uh, Lois says to Lara, he oh, is our right, first yes. and best hero. My problem with that was that, like, what, didn't she, she's supposed to have, she should have said superhero. There's, like, tons of fucking heroes in history. Like, he's the first superhero. Um, and then at least, if, even there, like, you could always have the argument, like, you know, people will come and say Batman is not a superhero. So by that token, Green Arrow is not a superhero either. He's just a regular hero. So if that would have made it even more, like, make sense. But maybe there's some, like, rule that they can't say superhero. I don't know. Um, so the solar flare, I was ambivalent about just, like, the Lara appearance. And the reason I was ambivalent about it was, on the one hand, I like the solar flare, I think it's a cool power and I think it also creates good opportunities to tell stories where Superman is depowered without having to bring in like goofy, you know, red kryptonite or or something like that. Like he has to build back up after using the solar flare. So he can do stuff like um, struggle to pick up a car or whatever. Like, and it's not like you're doing the full reset to the 1938 version, but then he can leap tall buildings in a single bound, but maybe it takes him a couple days to get flight back, right? So that's another thing I like about the solar flare. What I didn't like in this particular circumstance was that he used the power when all of these Kryptonians in human bodies were with him in the clouds. How did he know that they were going to fall and have Kryptonian invulnerability instead of just getting Kryptonian consciousness removed from them and then falling as humans and all dying when they hit the pavement. That's what I thought happened. As soon as he hit the solar flare and they all fell, I was like, oh, they're all, oh shit, all their essences left them. They're going to die. Is Superman going to catch them all? And he didn't. And I was like, wait, that, that just seemed like a big, like power plot hole that they should have caught. Right? Yeah, I think there's no, I don't, I don't see any defense of that. It just yeah. seems like a giant hole that they were just like focused on other stuff and all those people should be dead. <laughs> and, or they should have shot a scene where he like 
flew around and did the thing where he like patches people and puts them on top of buildings, you know, so that like he can get them before they all like actually yeah. fall apart. Or, or like he couldn't have done that because he just solar flared, right? So he wouldn't have been able to do that. So it really, really made no sense. They 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 botched uh, that. It's yeah, that was that was just messed up. That was a botch. Well, we covered a lot. Let's stop here. That was really fun. I needed to get a lot of that out. I'm really, really excited for the next episode, which is promised by the previews and such to be a flashback episode. So I think we're going to have a lot of uh, stuff to talk about. And then there's going to be another hiatus till July because COVID sucks. Well, July's you know, like a week. July 13th. Sorry. Oh, okay. <laughs> yes, Bummer. that is true. Yeah. So a couple of weeks, it's not like a big hiatus, but um, got a few weeks. So and anyway, we thank you. What, like four more? The season finale. Well, I'm not sure. I don't. Yeah. How many episodes did they order? I think it was supposed to be 15. 15. Okay. So after the if flashback episode is 11, that would leave four more. Oh, and I'm actually super stoked for that that 15th episode because Tom Cavanaugh, also known as Harrison Wells from The Flash, is going to direct the uh, 15th episode. So that's cool. going to be that's going to be kind of cool. I like when like Arrowverse guys come in and and guest direct. Yeah, that's like when Jonathan Frakes directs uh, Star Trek, and I'm right. always like happy about it. And they're always good episodes, and. Yeah. The, and when he directed First Contact, it was an amazing movie, too. So, it was. Um, yeah, tune into our other uh, podcast, folks, Star Trek, uh, <laughs> another time. <laughs> but um, anyway, Sam, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Henry. Take care. Always a pleasure. Thanks for listening. Our theme was composed and performed by Sam Bernstein. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button so you don't miss another thrilling adventure of Superman and Lois and Pals.